0: Paul, so good to have you today and such an interesting topic that uh, I'm curious about. A few months ago, it was the first ever time I brought a common friend of ours, his name is Austin, on the podcast to talk about, you know, psychedelics overall. I've had my personal experience in psychedelics, I've explored that. Dimension and has really served me very well. And I was kind of concerned bringing Austin on because like, I don't know if it's really acceptable. And I tend to have a very global audience. It's not very only U.S. It's right. maybe 50% of our audience is U.S. and then it's the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. And so the topic can get a little bit edgy. Mm-hmm. Because in U.S., it's a little bit more acceptable right now, especially in the entrepreneurial world, psychedelics and microdosing and all these things are a little bit more acceptable. But it is not so acceptable globally, or at least that's my experience of conversations globally that I've had. For that matter, it may be a little bit taboo too. Mm-hmm. But I was really excited to kind of get the response on that episode. I got a lot of emails coming directly to me saying, we love this episode. It's actually great that you're bringing it up in context of coaching. Not that everybody's able to facilitate such sessions in coaching, but it's good to have that awareness to be then sent to the right people who are certified or can uh, have the right resources, have the right legal structures to be able to facilitate something like this. So mm-hmm. it piqued my curiosity and I'm excited to talk to you about this particular topic. Uh-huh. Before we get the party started, give a little bit understanding of why microdosing, where you're coming from, what's the background, how did you get hooked on to this world and why you think it's so important right now?
1: I was raised in Grand Rapids, Michigan in a pretty traditional family, quite religious, and grew up with a lot of shame and guilt around being self-expressed. And so at the age of 19, I had my first experiences with LSD and psilocybin uh, at higher doses and had that sort of before and after moment, uh, which set me on a path of being a digital nomad, an entrepreneur. Uh, I lived in Turkey, Thailand, uh, Portugal, Oaxaca, and one of the places that I spent a few months in was Budapest in 2015. And while I was living there, I again was experimenting with a higher dose of, of LSD uh, with a couple friends. And we just sort of were reflecting on the space seems to be growing in popularity. Tim Ferriss and Joe Rogan were starting to publish podcasts about it. There was more research coming out. Cannabis was being reevaluated. And we thought this has a deep historical context, first off. Uh, you know, we've been using these sacred plant medicines for thousands and thousands of years. And we're sitting at a special moment in time where they could be really useful for not only mental health, but to remind us of how important it is to connect to nature, to connect to community, to connect with ourselves in particular. And so we framed it as this third wave of psychedelics. And microdosing we chose as a great entry point because a lot of folks who hear about psychedelics are initially intimidated. Right? There's a lot of phenomenal stories that have come out and there's also a lot of horror stories of, of challenging experiences or quote-unquote bad trips. And so instead of feeling like people have to jump in the deep end right away, microdosing opens up an opportunity to start to build a relationship with the substance to sort of test out the waters before potentially going much deeper into a like high-dose mushroom journey or an ayahuasca experience or whatever that might entail. And so it feels like microdosing is a really good Way to culturally integrate these substances. You know, we tried this in the 60s with LSD and it just went sideways uh, and ended up being prohibited for 50 years. And so I see microdosing as an entryway for a global population to actually work with these substances without being worried about, you know, ego death and, uh, you know, a a bad trip and some of these other kind of initiations that can occur with, with the high doses of psychedelics.
0: So when you say psychedelics, and you kind of used it interchangeably, so I just want to be mindful of what we're really talking about, is you said psychedelics and then you also said plant-based. But nice. LSD is not plant-based. Right. So, but you referenced LSD a couple of times. So right. what are we really talking about? Are you advocating for any substance that puts us into a psychedelic state and microdose that? Or are you talking about very specifically plant-based, which I would imagine is psilocybin?
1: Yeah, so the sacred plant medicines would be ayahuasca, psilocybin, San Pedro, peyote, and iboga are the Mm -hmm. most common, right? Yeah. And then LSD, MDMA, and ketamine are the three most popular synthetic substances. And so when we're talking about microdosing in particular, the two most common are going to be LSD, which is a semi synthetic, and psilocybin mushrooms, which Mm -hmm. is a fungi, which grows Mm -hmm. from, you know, the ground and is totally Mm -hmm.
0: natural. What is the difference between? Microdosing something which is semi synthetic like LSD or something that is pretty plant based, very like has been used for generations, just is becoming more commonplace right now, like psilocybin.
1: Yeah, so LSD is uh, derived from ergot, which is a fungus that grows on rye bread. It was invented in 1938, it was started to be used in 1943. We have As a Western population, we have a deep history with ergot. It was used in the Eleusinian Mysteries by the ancient Greeks, Plato and Aristotle. And so LSD is a semi-synthetic from that. It tends to be more intense. So neurobiologically, LSD is more dopaminergic, meaning more dopamine. So tied to focus, attention, and motivation. Whereas psilocybin is more serotonergic, tied to serotonin, more about contemplation, somatics, connection to the self. And so when we're looking at intention for people who are starting to microdose with these substances, I think what is key is like, are you looking for more flow, creativity, and focus? Or are you looking for more, let's say, emotional healing, uh, connection to the self, Embodiment. And if you're looking more for like the flow, creativity, focus, LSD is going to be much better because of that higher dopamine response. Mm -hmm. Whereas psilocybin, uh, because of that more serotonergic response, is going to be better for healing the emotional body. Now, there's a little bit more nuance in that. So, for example, a lot of people who are looking at microdosing are looking at it as a way to get off psychiatric medications, right? So a lot of folks who, for example, have been, uh, you know, taking Ritalin or Adderall or Vivant, some of these uh, medications for ADD and ADHD, they find LSD to be a better substitute for that because all of these psychedelics are non-addictive and non-habit-forming. Whereas those who have been on SSRIs, let's say Prozac, Zoloft, Wellbutrin, even, they're looking at psilocybin as a way to transition off of those. Now with all that being said, this is not medical advice and this is not something that I would even recommend. What I always tell folks who potentially have been on psychiatric medications is always check with a medical professional, a psychiatrist to make these transitions. And that just helps to map a little bit more of the territory of Who might be interested in these and what's the intention behind using them?
0: When we're talking about microdosing something like LSD, you said it's not habit-forming. Does that mean it's also, because it is Mm semi-synthetic, right? So, Mm -hmm. Or at least that's also something that's new to me. To me, it was completely synthetic. So that's Mm -hmm. new information. And because of that, is that harmful to the body over a long period of time?
1: So they've done longitudinal studies from people who have been using LSD from the 50s and 60s up Mm -hmm. to now, and they've shown that there's no necessarily negative long-term consequences in using LSD for an extended period of time. Now, that's looking more at high doses on an occasional basis. What's interesting about microdosing, just for the listeners, is microdosing is really about a protocol where you're doing this two or three times a week for maybe 30 days to 60 days to 90 days. It's a little bit longer of a time period. So because microdosing is so nascent. And then you
0: stop after 30, 60, or 90 and days. And
1: then you stop, you take a break, you come back to baseline, you assess, and then if you feel like another intention is arising in which it could be beneficial to work with this, then some people will use it. So they'll kind of cycle on and cycle off.
0: Mm.
1: And I think there's also something here to, to sort of clarify, which is synthetic doesn't necessarily mean bad. Right And natural doesn't necessarily mean good. There are a lot of natural things that will kill you and there are a lot of synthetic things that could potentially be helpful. And so specifically when it comes to LSD and psilocybin, even though LSD is semi-synthetic and psilocybin is natural, they have a very similar physiological effect on the brain and the heart and it looks like overall they're very safe to use. But again, microdosing is new. We know and have research and and, and sort of data on occasional high-dose psychedelic
0: experiences, but we're still learning a lot about microdosing currently. Is that the same version or same kind of protocol when you're doing something like psilocybin? 30, 60, 90 days and then go off, and then 30, 60, 90 days and then go off, and you must have an intention to want to microdose?
1: I think intention generally in life is a really good thing to have, (laughs) because it helps us to focus, right? There's so much chaos going on, intention brings order. (laughs) So with LSD in particular, because of that higher dopamine response that people are experiencing, if it's done too often, it can tend to lead to manic states. Mm -hmm. So what's really important with LSD is to do it no more than two times per week if someone is going to microdose. So one day on, two days off, one day on, two days off. Uh, do that for anywhere from 30 to 60 days assess where you're at take at least two to three weeks off and then continue if that's something that you feel compelled to do with psilocybin it's a little bit more it's a little softer i would say overall mm-hmm. and so the common protocol with psilocybin is one day on one day off mm-hmm. and so that would be three times a week similar time frame in terms of 30 to 60 days and then to take a break to assess baseline and then if you feel called to continue with it, to continue to do it. So, slightly different protocols, just because the neurobiological response is different. But overall, it's a similar trajectory in terms of you're committing to a, let's say, a sixty day intention. Uh, you're committing to a protocol that's, you know, in the case of LSD, twice a week. In the case of psilocybin, three times a week. And you're not approaching it like it's going to fix you, right? And mm-hmm. I think that's a really important nuance to bring because, especially those who live in the states and in the Western world, we've been conditioned to look at pills to fix us, right? If I take this, I'll be better. Whereas with microdosing, what we say is microdosing is not a magic pill. It helps with neuroplasticity. It helps to catalyze change, but ultimately you have to be a willing participant and you have to have autonomy in what you're creating in order to make that change. And so looking at it more as, uh, you know, an ally rather than a savior, I think is a really important perspective to bring to working with this. Because if not, although it's not physiologically addictive, Meaning, if you just stop microdosing, you're not going to have withdrawals or headaches or things like you would with caffeine or SSRIs or other things like that. It can be psychologically addictive. Like anything could be psychologically addictive. So if someone is working with microdosing and they're like, oh, the only reason I'm getting better is because I'm taking LSD or because I'm taking psilocybin, they're giving their power up to that substance. Mm-hmm. Whereas it's better to look at it, oh, like I am now really being healed in such a way. And I have an ally that can help me, but it's still my full responsibility to actually make the changes in my life that are going to be transformative.
0: Because we are talking about things like LSD, Mm -hmm. and from what I know, they are illegal in the United States, and I think globally, really at this point. Is the microdosing part, can you even legally do this? LSD is illegal pretty much everywhere. And the reason for that is
1: because in 1968 the United States made it illegal and because the United States was the world power at that point in time, they made the UN adopt a convention in 1971 that said in every other country in the world this has to be illegal,
0: right? So Yeah, and everywhere. it's so funny because if you do research around it, it's just basically a political gimmick. It was the war on is, drugs and it was you know was against the Vietnam gimmick, War yeah.
1: protesters yeah, yeah. And, and things of that nature. Yeah. So it's political, it's not scientific, right? Yeah. That's important to clarify. Psilocybin is a little bit different. So with psilocybin, you know, psilocybin truffles are legal in the Netherlands. Psilocybin is legal in Jamaica. It's decriminalized in Mexico and Costa Rica. And now in the United States, Colorado has legalized psilocybin mushrooms. Oregon has legalized psilocybin mushrooms. And there are a number of jurisdictions like Oakland, Seattle, Detroit that have decriminalized psilocybin and all plant medicines. And so what that means is you can grow your own mushrooms. So like, you know, on our platform, we have a grow kit that we can send to your home. You can grow your own mushrooms, you can grow your own medicine, you just can't sell that medicine to other people. So increasingly, personal possession is becoming more and more feasible. And frankly, the DEA is not particularly interested in psychedelics and plant medicine at this point in time because of all the research, because of the change in cultural opinion. They're much more focused on fentanyl and cocaine and other much harder drugs. So Mm -hmm. there's not really an emphasis on it. There's more of a nuanced gray area. And then just to bring it back to LSD, what's interesting is this sort of war on drugs. What it's done is it's created incentives to make very slight, small changes to LSD, uh, what are called analogs, which are essentially not covered by current laws. And so Mm -hmm. these are legal in Canada, these are legal in many places in Europe. Technically, they are illegal still in the United States, although you can purchase them and have access to them. And so a lot of folks who maybe aren't really connected in a scene where this is more prevalent have found some success in purchasing these analogs. Like one example is 1P LSD, which then is consumed and metabolized just like regular LSD, and it's a very similar experience. So again, when I talk about this, particularly as it relates to the legality, what I communicate to folks is do your own research right don't do anything that you feel uncomfortable doing don't do anything that you feel like would put you in jeopardy and just as an example for this there was a woman in indiana who was a nurse who was growing her own mushrooms who somehow her coworkers found out about it they tattled on her to the police and she was arrested mm-hmm. right she had five kids they were all taken away from her now she fought it in court she got the sort of thing removed this is to say like These are still illegal. Everyone has to make a decision about what's comfortable for them in terms of how they want to pursue it and if they want to pursue it. And very soon, I would say in the next five years, accessibility is going to grow tremendously. So California has a a ballot right now that was just approved by the Senate uh, that will go to the governor's desk pretty soon to legalize all plant medicines. Now that's not LSD, that's mushrooms, ayahuasca, iboga, things like that. MDMA uh, which I believe you talked about in your last episode with Austin, will be likely be approved to treat PTSD and approved by the FDA in 2024. So accessibility is happening rapidly, but still in our current landscape, there are risks, these are largely illegal, and people really need to do their own research and feel into what they feel comfortable uh, doing uh, so they don't put themselves or their families or their
0: livelihoods at risk. Beautiful. And I do feel I don't have exposure to microdosing LSD at all, really. But I do have exposure to microdosing on psilocybin. And it is definitely like you kind of addressed, and I never saw it that way. And I didn't even know that you could microdose LSD, to be very honest. But what you said when you were talking about psilocybin is so interesting, especially for people in my field, if you have access to it and if you're comfortable with it, of course, is because it kind of opens up your emotional body a lot more. Like Mm -hmm. you kind of are able to process things that otherwise may feel difficult to process in your conscious state. Mm -hmm. I don't know exactly the scientific and the mechanics of why it happens, Mm -hmm. but experientially... What happens for me when I have done uh, microdosing of of psilocybin very specifically is it gives me a sense of awareness of my emotions more easily, mm-hmm. and because of I think rise in serotonin, the acceptance of them more easily, to just let them be a part of me, which allows me to be able to communicate much more easily. In capacity of really being, you know, like, okay, we can really talk about anything, which has helped me tremendously with my social anxiety, right. which sometimes still is present to me, especially mm-hmm. in a large setting. I feel very comfortable in small settings. I feel very easy there. But when I am at events and seminars, my emotional body kind of shuts down a little bit. It's a little uh, it kind of right? feels yeah. overwhelming. It yeah. feels a little, not that anybody's judging me, but my story is that I'm being judged uh, also because of sometimes the position I hold in that room or, and so forth. So I kind of shut down a little bit in that container sometimes. And I found microdosing mm-hmm. has helped me come over that social anxiety a mm-hmm. little bit so it definitely is helpful in again intentional very intentional every time i would do something like that it would be very very intentional and very micro just so that i could see if there is another experience that i could create that i'm not able to really resolve per se with my coaching experience or with my therapy experience or with my other experiences of life where i'm feeling like i'm still finding that resistance and I found that to be really, really helpful mm-hmm. to the use of psilocybin in that situation.
1: I'm glad you brought this up because what this speaks to is these are really versatile tools, right? So social anxiety, it's something that I've struggled with as well. So when I first started microdosing in 2015, the intention was to minimize my alcohol use, basically replace alcohol with microdosing mm-hmm. because alcohol has a lot of negative physiological aspects, you know, hangovers, liver, all that sort of stuff. So I was like. Oh, it's interesting, microdosing, and mine was with LSD at that point in time. Microdosing LSD helps me just to be more extroverted. It helps me be less in my head, it helps me to be more present. You know, I don't necessarily need to you know, drink a beer or a cocktail or something like that in order to really let go and, and just be present. And so that was my first opening introduction to it. And this sort of speaks to like drugs generally, right? We as humans, whether it's caffeine, whether it's alcohol, whether it's tobacco, whether it's psychedelics, Right? We sort of have this natural intuition to want to alter our consciousness. And so when we're looking at tools that can help with that, I find things like psilocybin and LSD in particular because they don't have the same uh, context as ayahuasca. Right, We're not going to like... Microdose ayahuasca and go to a social event, right? That's Mm -hmm. very intentional. That's very ceremonial. It's very that. But LSD and psilocybin, they're very versatile in that, oh, you have this intention. It can help you and support you in that process. You know, the other thing that was really helpful for me is in 2018, I was struggling with overwhelm. I was living in New York City at the time. It was really stressful on my emotional body. You know, there's just so much going on there that I just had to like repress a lot of my emotions. And so I started seeing a therapist, and she was like, hey Paul, why don't you just take a microdose of psilocybin before coming into therapy once a week? So what I would do is I would take 200 milligrams of psilocybin, and what I noticed is in that therapeutic process, it was much easier to access these difficult emotions like sadness, anger, grief, shame, that normally I would keep You know, below the surface, and all of a sudden it was like, oh, I'm working with this therapist that I trust, who is phenomenal, I'm working with a medicine that's an ally that's opening me to be more in touch with my feelings, and that catharsis, I think. That catharsis then allows us to feel more present, more connected, and more available, which in a way rewires our entire self to feel more at home. Because I think at the end of the day, Right, like The reason I have and continue to work with psychedelics and plant medicine is because they help me to come home to myself. They help me to be present with everything that is and not feel like I need to shut down or prohibit or cut off aspects of who I am to fit in, to be validated, to be loved. And so I think that coming home, whether it's with microdosing or higher dosing, that feeling comfortable in my own skin... Psychedelics and, and plant medicine have, have helped tremendously with that.
0: Like I said, it, it definitely has helped me as well to, to get past that. So one of the intentions that somebody who's listening to this podcast or this conversation could have is if they are struggling with certain scenarios like accessing their emotions or being in touch with them or finding their emotions to be Restrictive is not the right word, but feel like that they take so much dominance in their life that they're not able to process it. Mm -hmm. Hopefully that makes sense. But that could be done by the use of some microdosing Mm -hmm. elements like psilocybin, or psilocybin seems like something that would work in that scenario. And what I've also found, and some of my friends have experimented with this as well, and they have found it to be really powerful, especially for individuals that are very much in their head, like Mm -hmm. I've spoken to a lot of my friends that are very much in their head, high performers, you know, people who are making big waves in the world, find it really hard to hold a regular conversation now because Mm -hmm. they're so passionate about what they do, including myself. It's really hard for me sometimes to have just a normal conversation. Uh, It's not because it's hard for me. It's just I sometimes I'm like so full of my vision of life and vision of what I'm creating that it becomes hard to have the play off a regular conversation, right. like which just talks about you know the pool <laughs> or whatever it is. Right. But it is important because that's how your brain relaxes and doesn't have to like think about these complex ideas at all times. Right. It can just be. And sometimes I feel that, that my emotions can relax a little bit just because they use of this. So I, I would think it would be helpful, again, within the safety of parameters, within whatever is legal in the place that you're at right now, to experiment with that and to lean into that to see what could be possible. And like you said, I think it's important to note that we're not talking about major doses. Major doses is something you absolutely need to have a good container for. Mm -hmm. We're talking about micro, micro doses.
1: And what you're speaking to is like the importance of playfulness, right? That when we're always thinking, when we're always linear, when we're always do, 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 that other half of our brain uh, which allows for flow, creativity, playfulness is not activated. So Einstein, which is someone that everyone knows, you know, he would play violin well into his 80s because violin and music helped to balance out all of the intense thinking that he was doing on a normal basis. And so what we notice also with microdosing and even some of these higher doses is people have this latent creativity that gets opened up and that playfulness i find even when i go back to like working with social anxiety and cutting out alcohol the reason i microdose with lsd is i noticed it just made me more playful on a day to day basis mm-hmm. and that i think is so important for entrepreneurs in particular like type a entrepreneurs because it brings them out of that like tunnel vision and what we know more and more and i and i'm experiencing myself you know this right now as a ceo is the less time i spend in tunnel vision and tactical and having to think about what i got to get done and the more time i spend in strategy and vision and inspiration the more money my business makes the better my team does the stronger the culture is and so that shift i think is huge even from a leadership development perspective so people aren't so You know, tunnel vision, and they're much more expansive about how they're approaching not only their business, but their entire life.
0: Absolutely, and so true. Not directly correlated to microdosing, but what I've found is every single time a founder, and I work with a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of companies have in the past and still do, to some companies now, not a lot at this point, but most companies that I work with, the hardest battle is for the entrepreneur to get out of the business for a hot minute because they're so in it that it actually restricts the growth of the business because they think they got it but because they're all in their head and not in actual understanding of what's actually working, what's not actually working because you need to have the play and creativity to look beyond the focus that you have. It's like, oh, I'm working on this product and that becomes the focus of everybody because it's your focus and you can drive everybody's focus. So effectively, that's why you're the visionary of the company but you just forget that there's all of this that is available and that's actually what your clients sometimes want and need and maybe also fuels you a lot more. But because you got stuck strategically to an idea, mm-hmm. you're so focused on it that you're working on the wrong thing because right. you're not letting the availability of creativity and insight to really channel the that activity that, that actually would drive the business or the outcome that you're trying to drive in the business. and That is easier to do with, yes, the support of micro-dosing, but it's also an important thing to note when you're working with entrepreneurs or you are an entrepreneur yourself, is to say, you gotta step out, like step out, go for a walk, if nothing else. Even if you can't microdose in the place that you're in, go for a long walk. It will serve your business so much more than sitting in front of the computer writing the 10th email. Right. It's actually significantly better right. for you and for the business and will actually help you grow your business if you just invested more time at the gym or went for a walk or you know, cooked the meal for change instead of ordering in the hundredth time. Mm. It would actually serve you a lot more. It's a beautiful example and correlation of what microdosing can do, but generally I think what life with an integrated approach of not always staying in the tunnel vision can do for you. Could you give us, because you're somebody who probably knows a lot more about the use psilocybin specifically, or even i see if that was the case historically, because now, of course, now it's the third wave, like your company is also named, mm-hmm. but it's not the first time humanity has experimented with it, or humanity has explored it. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of historical evidence of it being used. Tell us a little bit more about the history of psilocybin. Let's start with that.
1: Yeah, thank you for asking this. It's I studied history in undergrad. It's sort of the context of even this third wave of psychedelics, and I think it's so important that we anchor and root in history because time repeats itself. And so the more lessons we learn about how this has been used previously, the better that we can leverage these substances, these medicines for where we're going from here. So when it comes to the history of psilocybin in particular, there's like hypotheses from Terence McKenna, who was a this sort of Irish bard in the 80s, like a brilliant philosopher and, and writer, and also Paul Stamets, who's a current you know, the world's foremost mycologist, and he came up with this thing called the Stamet stack, which is a microdosing protocol. And they both believe that our ancient hominid ancestors used to consume psychedelic psilocybin mushrooms on the savannas of Africa. So thinking back 30, 40, 50, 100,000 years. And that the use of psilocybin was an evolutionary advantage because particularly at lower doses, psilocybin helps to improve eyesight, smell, which, when you're out in the savannah looking, you know, watching out for predators or potentially hunting, that capacity, that enhanced capacity, gives you an evolutionary advantage. What they also believe is that the use of psilocybin was partially responsible for the massive growth in our head. So there's a big jump from about you know 150,000 years ago to 50,000 years ago in terms of our brain's capacity. And they believe that the high doses of psilocybin mushrooms were partially responsible for that. And sort of the third and final component of that is the, the sort of about 20 to 30,000 years ago, we started finding cave paintings. And so we also believe that uh, psilocybin could have been helpful for sort of the introduction of religion and spirituality as a concept in the evolution of human consciousness. Now, a lot of that is speculative. And I want to preface it because I think it's important that it's emphasized that it's speculative. What is not speculative is a few different uses of psilocybin. It's not LSD, but it's, it's sort of what LSD came from, ergot, in the ancient world. And I'll talk about two examples in particular. One is a substance called soma, which was written about in the Bhagavad Gita and the Upanishads. And they believe that soma was a brew that was made from psilocybin mushrooms that the ancient Vedics used, you know, four to 5,000 years ago as a way to connect with God, source, oneness, spirituality, right? So (coughs) there's a deep, rich lineage with psilocybin in that lens. When it comes to ergot, which is what LSD is made from, I hinted at this already, but um, and there's a phenomenal book about this called The Immortality Key, which I would recommend putting in the show notes and listeners can check out. Ergot was used to make a beverage called kaikian. And kaikian was drank as part of these Eleusinian mysteries. And there's evidence that traces that back to about 20, 2,500 to 3,000 years ago, so pre-Socratic ancient Greece. And there's evidence that Plato and Aristotle, as well as many other influential Greek thinkers, participated in these Eleusinian mysteries. And that as part of these Eleusinian mysteries, they drank this beverage called kykeon, that it opened up this sort of psychedelic and mystical landscape. And the key with these mysteries is that you could not talk about them. And that if you talked about them, you were either killed or you were basically sent to live on an island the rest of your life. So in other words, there was a lot of privacy and secrecy about what was actually going on there. So we know very little actually about the specific goings-ons of the Eleusinian Mysteries outside of the fact that we know that they happened and these major figures participated in them. Unfortunately, uh, around the time that Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire, which was... Early fourth century, 307 AD, they shut down all of those mysteries because they were pagan, because they were you know non-Judeo, because they didn't recognize God as the one and only God in the sort of Christian context, and so they shut down those Eleusinian mysteries. Which means, to bring this to a more modern context, we as a Western populace have been cut off from our lineage for 1,700 years, right? You know, we hear about things like ayahuasca in the Amazon, we hear about things like iboga in Gabon, even San Pedro and Wachuma, from the ancient Incans, Uh, you know, all this indigenous use. And it's important, but they've only been cut off from that for maybe five, six, seven hundred years. We haven't been in touch with this for 1,700 years, which is why education and context around this is so important because most people who hear about psychedelics don't know left from right. They don't know up from down. They're essentially illiterate when it comes to the psychedelic landscape. And so the way that we love to frame it, both through our platform and also through our, our training program for coaches, is psychedelics are a skill. They're a skill that can be mastered. And just like you can learn to read, write, cook, play music, you can learn how to work with psychedelics in a way that can help not only you, but also your clients to accelerate healing and transformation. And so that lens is saying, okay, we recognize the importance of the ancients, and we are going to honor some of those traditions and legacies, and we have tools available in the modern age that have never been available before that, if leveraged correctly, could really help to ease not only suffering, but accelerate transformation.
0: And it's so true for many cultures. And and yes, there was the whole Christianity and I think a lot of colonization also kind of took a lot of countries away from their cultures in the sense of being able to practice it because it just became a taboo right. in many parts of the world, including India. That's where I come from. And as you say it, I was like, yeah, we always had a culture of psychedelics or psychedelic-like substances. I'm not fully aware of exactly the substances, but we even are one of the main gods in the Hindu tradition Mm -hmm. is called Lord Shiva, Mm. who is often portrayed as somebody who would use type of psychedelics in his experience. And he's a god, right? He's the creator and the destroyer of the universe in the mythological Indian tradition. This is before Bhagavad Gita and everything. So it's one of those gods. And he is the ultimate creator and destroyer of the world. And he was somebody who was constantly, or at least has constantly been portrayed as somebody who had, I don't know if they're necessarily psychedelic but they were experiences or his practices include being in altered states. That probably is a better term for it because I don't know the exact definition of psychedelic and would it qualify for that or not. Mm -hmm. But altered state is very commonly practiced with individuals who practice or follow that particular God some of them at least. And then there's the tamer version, more acceptable version, where they do not practice any of it, sure. but there's a whole version of it that is very common uh, of the kind of uh, sadhus, as we call them, that mm-hmm. practice that particular thing. And it's, uh, it's fascinating to kind of have that you know coming full circle to now going, well, why did we stop doing that? <laughs> right. uh, when did we stop doing that? Or why is it that it became such a taboo and goes back to the 60s and goes back to the UN and goes back to the US saying, we got to do something for this political scenario that we have to shut down all these people who are kind of saying, why the heck are we in Vietnam? Let's stop doing that and give them something else to fight at the house. So that way they stop, worrying about this other war that we are losing. And that led to that whole shutdown process. And only 50 years later are we being awakened to, that's just not a good idea. It's good to have society evolve. It's good to have our brains and our souls and our emotions being expanded. And yes, sometimes it may mean that we are using sources that we don't fully understand, or from my perspective, we don't fully understand, but we understand enough to make use of it, Mm -hmm. right? And that's what science is. Science is not fully always understanding everything, Science is understanding enough that we can put it to practical use. And once we put it to practical use, then we go, okay, let's, let's make it a common practice. And then whenever we will fully understand, we'll understand, or maybe we'll never fully understand. And that's perfectly okay, too, because we understand enough to make use of something. So I think that's fascinating that we're going back to that. And I can see, at least in my own personal journey, it's been very helpful use of certain psychedelics over a course of a long period of time. I don't practice them even once a year, but whenever I have had a calling or an uncertainty or a place where I need to go to be able to not be restricted by my own stories, my own inhibitions, where I have had the need to envision something, when I had the need to release something, to open my heart, to be be more accepting, to let go of things... I have found psychedelics or altered state per se to be very helpful to make that transition faster, quicker, because it almost feels like every single time you to take that approach, you drop back into who you really are. At the core soul level, which is to me, for my personal experience and my experience with my friends that I have had as a safe container to have such conversations, is we are all infinite selves. There is no limitation, there is no restriction. It is all love, it's all good practice. We all are trying to do something good for humanity and then we are told to do other things and so we operate differently. We operate from evil, we are not evil. Uh, We operate from an identity that we are told to form. We are not that identity. We are much beyond that, which inherently changes the way we approach another human being once you understand that, intentionally all human beings are good. Intentionally. Like in the sense from intention, if you look at their intention, they're all good. They're all trying to do good things. Now how it shows up you may not agree, you may think they're bad people, whatever that is. It's not because their intention is wrong. Right. They're just in a bad circumstance or they've had the bad, wrong story or they've had the wrong exposure or whatever it might be. And psychedelics is like call back to home. It's mm-hmm. like the home that we all have within ourselves as just human beings mm-hmm. that for some reason, exist in this environment and have the consciousness and awareness that we exist in this environment and are aware to make use of our reality, that is. It's just almost like a call back home uh, when we take a psychedelic substance. Again, like you always give a disclaimer, the very controlled uh, environments or controlled in sense, safe environments more than controlled environments. I I think it's powerful.
1: Yeah, and, and that remembrance, I think, is why they continue to be or have been prohibited, right? Because when we remember that that soul or that essence of who we are, we have that experience of, of what they call gnosis or knowing, then mm-hmm. we're much harder to control, we're much harder to manipulate, we're much harder to feel like we're forced to do something. And so that sovereignty, what I come back to is like the word sovereignty, freedom, autonomy, right? all of these are lessons of that immortal self that exists within all of us, And so when we open up to source, God, oneness, whatever we want to call it through these experiences, it's a remembrance of that expansion, that sovereignty, that freedom. And then we have a new sort of, not only a new lease on life, but a new direction that our compass is pointing us, a new vision that we can execute against, a new way that we want to show up in the world, in our relationships for each other. And I find that that coming from that place of deep knowing, that we are this immortal self, makes life much easier to navigate because there's less attachment to the challenge and the difficulties. And we do so much from the fear of death. And one of the biggest lessons from working with psychedelics and plant medicines is that death in many ways is an illusion. It's death of the small self. There is no death of this greater immortal self. It will continue to grow and evolve outside of our little personality,
0: if you will. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that, Paul. Paul, what would be some final ideas that you would like to present to our listeners today that could help them make their first advancement or first step towards understanding this concept more or being able to take the first step towards this concept if they were ready for it and if it was available to them?
1: Yeah, so there's a few things that I would communicate. One is don't feel obligated or don't feel like you have to pursue this path because anyone else is. In other words, this is a personal choice and a personal decision that when you're ready, you can come into it. But you know, it has become quite trendy lately and cool, and for good reason. It, it works. It's effective. People have incredible experiences, and everyone comes into it in their own time. So I think that's just important to emphasize, is like come into this in your own time when you're ready, Don't feel like it's an obligation or you're being forced in any way to have to do it. I think the second thing is when that choice is made to find a coach, a guide, a therapist, a practitioner. Now, this is somewhat relevant for microdosing, especially for those who are brand new. Like We train a lot of microdosing coaches to help with intention, protocols, preparation, things like that. But this is especially important if you're looking at doing a higher dose is really take the time to find a great provider. And so what we have on our main website, The Third Wave, is we have a directory of retreats, clinics, therapists, and coaches that you can connect with if you want to you know, do a retreat or work with medicine to some degree. So I think the second most important component is to work with a, a trained and qualified practitioner. And I would say the third element is, you know I know there are quite a few coaches and practitioners that listen to this podcast. If you're interested in training, let's say, or working with these medicines yourself, first walk that path, right? First understand the landscape, first go there. And then if you feel called or ready to coach other people through assessment, prep, integration, microdosing, some of these things, you know, one thing that we've been spending a lot of time on and and really um, focused on over the last couple of years has been a training program for practitioners. And so it's really looking at coaches, clinicians, practitioners, training them in what we call the skill of psychedelics to help people assess, prepare, integrate, microdose. Because we believe that psychedelics, when used with intention and responsibility, can be a massive catalyst and accelerant for healing and transformation. And what is equally important is that they are done Uh, with understanding, with knowledge, with reverence, with responsibility, because as we talked about at the beginning of this episode, they can also be quite intense and challenging. And so it's important that a really well-held, safe container is present for that, and that any coach or practitioner who might want to work with it feels like they can actually, with integrity, provide that
0: for their clients or their family or the people that they know in their life. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Paul, for taking the time and taking this deep dive with us. It was amazing talking to you. This was
1: fun. Thank you so much.